0: Created live on Fireside. Good afternoon. It is noontime and you are here at Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Welcome. I am Dr. Laura DeVoe and I am your host. This is the next evolution of professional development in higher education. Every week, it is my honor to bring you topics of note in higher education, current trends, new information to ponder. Um and please be sure to subscribe to my newsletter What's Up in the Academy on the Substack platform which we just found out this week is the number 1 higher education newsletter on Substack so I'm excited about that. Um follow me here on Fireside, uh get all the alerts to my shows and you can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh from today's Chronicle of Higher Education, here's some news we are watching. Uh for nearly 50 years, colleges have eagerly awaited the latest Carnegie classifications to find out where they fall in a pecking order that, to many, has become synonymous with prestige in changes that are being announced today by the Carnegie Foundation for Advancement of Teaching and The American Council on Education. Beginning in 2023, colleges have a new distinction to aspire to, a category that reflects how well they contribute to social and economic mobility while serving diverse students. The new system, they hope, will better reflect the diversity of higher education institutions and create incentives for colleges to fill equity gaps. An important point of note Carnegie and ACE have now joined forces and something we are keeping an eye on and have some uh, opportunities out there to uh, speak to folks about that, hopefully on the show coming up. Um, from the, chron- from, sorry, from the inside higher education on Monday, the U.S. Department of Education released updates to the college scorecard that says it will make the tool more useful for students, families, and other providers weighing college options. The updates include restoring several metrics that help students compare institution costs, graduation rates, post-college earnings, and other metrics. Updates to the scorecard also include an annual refresh of the cumulative loan debt of student borrowers at both the institution level and by field of study within each institution, as well as federal student loan repayment rates for that institution. And finally, the last story we're taking a look at today is from a periodical called The Outsider. Uh, it is a uh, pop culture uh Uh, periodical, and specifically Dolly Parton's Theme Park Dollywood has announced they will begin paying college tuition for all their employees who are wishing to go. They'll be covering 100% of all college costs, which includes all fees and the cost of textbooks. This amazing benefit will be available to all employees on their very first day of work, which is better than some colleges and universities (laughs) provide. Um, This tuition coverage will kick in at the end of the month. It's available for all seasonal part-time as well as full-time employees of Dollywood parks and resort leading her employees to sing I will always love you in unison. So there you go. Uh, so, and if you are here, uh, for the show, please, uh, if you are having, uh, I would love folks to, uh, do me a favor and hit in the lower left-hand corner of your app broadcast to the world. Uh, that is, uh, a button that when you hit that, you can then copy it and you can share that out to your various uh, social media platforms. I have received an email from Susan saying she can't uh, hear, so I am going to uh, shoot back and let her know that she should uh, just reboot the app, And so there you go. All right, so hopefully she can join us. So thank you everybody and thank you all for being here and thank you for sharing the show with the world. Um, I am pleased to introduce our uh, guests today. Uh, First, the show topic, faculty members on the tenure track have to endure campus politics while producing research that earns notoriety and respect of their colleagues and the tenure review committee. It can take years and there are zero guarantees. For racially minoritized faculty at predominantly white in your review process is embedded with systemic bias that puts their candidacy for tenure at a disadvantage. As a result of these systemic inequities that racially minoritized faculty endure, they develop what scholars, uh, our guests, right, Mel and Ramos term resource deficit Consciousness of time, money, and prestige. This concept describes faculty members' internalized negative perceptions of their ability to meet and exceed traditional metrics for tenure and promotion. Um, today's guests are Dr. Wright, I'm sorry, Dr. Raquel Wright mayer She is an assistant professor of higher education at Rowan University. Dr. Wright Mayer conducts research that is grounded in social justice, equity, and inclusion in higher education. Um, her research agenda seeks to transform and advocate for creation of more equitable and inclusive campus environments for underrepresented populations, spef- specifically racially minoritized faculty members. Welcome, Dr. Wright-Mayer. Can you just say hi to everybody? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Laura. It's an honor to be here. I, I'm very pleased that you are here and, and uh, very happy to have you here. Uh Our next guest, Dr. Delma Reyes, is an assistant professor of higher education at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Dr. Ramos's work examines the experiences of historically minoritized populations in higher education from an equity and social justice lens. Particularly, she studies issues at the intersection of race, class, and gender. Welcome, Dr. Ramos.
1: Thank you, Laura. Very happy to be here today.
0: Wonderful to have you. Uh, up next, we have Dr. Frank Tewitt. Uh, uh, Dr. Tewitt is the University of Connecticut's Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer and Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs in the NEAG School of Education. He is the co-editor and contributing author of five books, including Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions, Power, Diversity, and Emancipatory struggle in higher education. Welcome, Dr. Tooitt.
2: Thank you, Laura. Pleasure to be here.
0: Lovely to have you. And hopefully, Susan can hear us now. Uh, We have. Excellent, Susan, yay! Uh, (laughs) And we have Dr. Susan Marine. Uh, She is the Professor of Higher Education and Vice Provost for Graduate Education at Merrimack College. Her research examines the intersection of queer and feminist transformational praxis, which is actualized through institutional change work to end sexual violence and flourishing of LGBTQ plus students, staff, and faculty. Welcome, Susan.
3: Thank you so much, Laura. Happy to be
0: here. Lovely to have you. Dr. Maureen, thank you for being here. All right. Well, I have to tell you, I am absolutely thrilled to have everybody here, and I do hope that uh, today we are able to spark some really good conversations around a really important topic. Um, and so I want to start with uh, Raquel and Delma, because uh, this is really based on a journal article that, you re- that you've published called Neutrality for Whom? Racially Minoritized tenure track Faculty Navigating Resource Deficit Consciousness in the Academy. And um, I want to start by talking about language. Uh, Language Mm -hmm. is so important uh, for building uh, learning and understanding of concepts. In your research, you are very intentional about the use of the term racially minoritized faculty. Can you explain uh, to us why this is so important for your research? I want to start there, and then we're going to go from that point.
4: Absolutely, Laura. Well, we understand and acknowledge that language holds a lot of power, right? Term racially minoritized, uh, which was first coined by uh, and utilized by scholars, Dr. Michael Benitez and Dr. D.L. Stewart in the early 2000s, um, to describe racially and ethnically diverse populations the term acknowledges and indicates the power of structural racism as a tool that seeks to divide and classify individuals with limited power based on society's construction of race. We do not use the terms minorities uh, or people of color as we recognize that these terms are not objective um, and certainly not indicative of quantity, but rather a status that is given to a certain group of people who have very limited power within society uh, and is entirely subjective based on those who hold power.
1: And so the usage of the term minoritized very explicitly highlights how structural oppression impacts the experiences of people that have been traditionally framed as minorities. It is not within themselves that the framing of minority came about, but because of the systemic inequalities that shape their day to day experiences. And that is why um, the term minoritized and it's on its own does amplify that emphasis on the structures and the systems that are racialized.
0: I appreciate your, uh, explanation because, and I want to now take it to another question is that when you, uh, were, uh, when you've used this terminology in your research, did you get any pushback from people and say, is there something here that we're, we're losing? Why is this so important to you? Or do you think that, that the Academy or the people who were supporting your research were ready for that kind of terminology?
4: That's such a great question, Laura. Um, And I think, (laughs) actually, Delma and I have been talking about um, creating a conference presentation on this very topic. So ironic that you should bring it up. It's really been 50-50, to be honest, Laura. Um, Initially, when I started publishing and using this, and actually uh, I I used this term in my dissertation. So uh, this has been a term I've been committed to using for a long time, uh, thanks to Dr. Benitez and Stewart. Um, And so it's become second nature for me to use this term in my writing. Uh, The first journal that I published in um, just simply asked for me to to put a footnote to explain, which was great. Um, I would say 50 percent of the journals I publish in um, don't even um, ask for an explanation. I have had some interesting um, pushback so i've had folks who don't understand um even when i give a justification of the term uh don't think that it is commonplace enough i've pushed back every single time um and oh i never had a problem after i pushed back um because i think once i'm able to uh explain sort of where i'm coming from the importance of the term and you know really acknowledging power right? In language. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've, I've to date not had any journals say, well, we're not going to publish this piece because you're using this. Uh, but during the review process, certainly I've experienced um, back and forth with reviewers about, is this appropriate? Is this commonplace? What, what's the purpose of this? And my answer to that is simply that as a scholar who is committed to transformative um actions it is important for me to own this in my language
0: mm. and and
4: acknowledge it too
0: I love that and yes you should do a conference presentation <laughs> absolutely yeah uh, delma i want to move to you on this next question can you explain uh in your research uh you talk about the concept of resource deficit consciousness Uh, and why this impacts racially minoritized faculty. Can you explain this concept a bit for folks so we can help frame this? And then I'm gonna move to Frank and Susan for the next question.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, so I'm gonna get us started and then I want uh, Dr. Reimer to also chime in since this was uh, a collaborate conceptualization. Uh, But uh, Dr. Reimer and I both started our faculty trajectories around the same time. So we are deeply familiar with what it is like to be a racially minoritized person in the academy. Uh, and so in much of our work overlaps in that we both look at the issues from a critical lens. Absolutely, mm-hmm. uh, really looking at structural inequality and how those uh, structured and um, systemic uh, deficiencies impact experiences of racially minoritized faculty. And so we came about Uh, the topic of the tenure track process because like I mentioned both of us are going through the process ourselves Mm -hmm. but uh, also because um, we in our own experience uh, have observed and experienced the systems that we talk about in our work and so within that term um, we uh, realize that our own experience lets us to experience what with your eyes and then I'm going to pass to Dr. Mm -hmm. Reimer to explain the theorization of the term itself.
4: Absolutely. So resource deficit consciousness is a, is a concept that describes the internalized negative perceptions that racially minoritized faculty have of their ability to meet and exceed traditional metrics of tenure and promotion. Um, so we developed this concept and this term, and certainly it's not something unique to just myself and Delma um, or our experiences. Um, but we recognize that from the research w- that we have been doing for you know many, many years, it's obvious in the literature that this has become a pattern, mm. right? It's never been named explicitly in the context of speaking about racially minoritized faculty on the tenure track per se. Um, but we have found that racially minoritized faculty develop this resource deficit consciousness because of the inherently racialized structures of, of institutions of higher education. Right. Um, and you would know this reading the paper, Laura, Laura um, the theoretical framework that we uh, utilized both in the paper and also in the conceptualization of resource deficit consciousness uh, was the theory of racialized organizations by Dr. Victor Ray. Um, A wonderful framework that, you know, is I I can't say enough good things about, but that really helped us to to help to set the context um, for naming this right this experience that many of us have and write about and research and, you know, whenever we've collected data. And so Delma and I have intersecting research agendas. We don't explicitly study the same populations, but we notice trends that are very, very similar across the board, regardless, um, you know, of of where people are are at. So, for example, a research one, a teaching institution, certainly there are dynamics that we account for in our manuscript. Um, But so that's a little bit about how we came up with the term.
0: And it's, I love when I heard the sound in your voice, uh, that when you actually found this framework that you said, oh my God, you know, I, I love when I hear that from, Mm -hmm. from from academicians where they say, I hear this and I say, okay, I'm not crazy. I, this is actually fits. This makes a lot of sense. So that actually, it's so perfect. I I love when I see that. And, and that's, that's great. And I, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear it in your voice. I want to turn our attention a bit to Frank uh, and Susan. uh, And I want to speak, I want you all to speak a bit about the tenure review process um, and the process itself, you're both uh, at advanced levels at your institutions, you've gone through this, uh, you have clearly have uh, gone through the tenure process yourselves, um, but also you have supervised uh, people going through that process. Um, talk a bit more about the process itself. Uh, we've heard about how systemically uh, the tenure review process and even the academy itself is set up in environments that are, are strictly uh, not conducive uh, to uh, these types of um, opportunities for us to be bringing in uh, a more diverse faculty. Uh, we are not in a space where we talk a good game. Uh, higher education speaks a good game. Are we actually doing right by our faculty? Talk to us more about that. Specifically, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the three tenets of uh, tenure review, specifically research, teaching, and service. So uh, Susan, why sure. don't you start?
3: Uh, sure. OK. Um, yes. So th- you've pointed to a really important issue here that I think um, lies at the heart of the really important work that um, that Raquel and Delma have put forth in their most recent article. And that is, you know, the tenure process itself is full of potential um, either barriers or assets to advancing faculty and particularly racially minoritized faculty. Um And I I guess I want to just begin by saying that I think there are two pieces to this puzzle. And the first is every college and university, especially four-year colleges and universities, there are things that we all do in this process that are very similar, Mm -hmm. meaning virtually every one of us looks at a scholar's research, productivity and quality, teaching, productivity and quality, and service. Every single entity in the United States, whether it's Merrimack or the University of Connecticut or Rowan, you know, we're all at very different places, UNCG, but we're, you know, at the end of the day, we have these three pillars, right? Mm -hmm. And every single one of us has idiosyncrasies to our process. Um, Because again, a Merrimack is not a Yukon, is not a UNCG, is not a Rowan. We're all different, you know, places with different emphases. So I think this presents both an opportunity for us because within each institution, the, the right kind of courageous transformational leadership can and should be brought to these processes to make sure that the issues that Raquel and Delma address in their article get addressed. Mm. And we have to have a broader conversation as a profession about the ways that neoliberalism is encroaching on these processes and really driving them. Um, in in particular directions that are making it harder and harder for us to live up to our kind of commitments to equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess I would just say that from my perspective, lots can be done to look critically at how each individual institution's processes operate, what we prioritize and valorize, what we don't. Um, We can remember and constantly remind ourselves that Tenure and promotion processes were mostly established in an era when our professoriate looked very different. Mm -hmm. And as Mm -hmm. our professoriate looks wonderfully more inclusive and more representative of our society, it is time for us to begin talking and thinking about, do our tenure and promotion standards and processes, do they serve us well anymore? And if not, let's address that.
0: Let's let's be clear, Susan. I think we can do an entire... A uh, month-long series of processes <laughs> that don't work for higher education anymore in terms of how we run things, and and the Absolutely. important thing is the process, right? Um, the important thing has always been the process. When the process doesn't work, um, inequities uh, trans get bigger, um, right. and also inefficiencies get bigger. So there's right. a lot there that can be. Can be discussed. Um, I want to ask Frank to take himself off mute and talk a little bit more about uh, some of the things that Susan brought up. You're at a very large university. You've seen, uh, you know, there's a glacial pace of change in higher education. uh, And when we can push for change, and how do we create uh, actual systemic changes that support uh, not only bringing in uh, a more diverse faculty, but also making sure that the faculty becomes tenured and are long-term members of the university community. It's one thing to recruit people, right? It's another thing to see people actually successfully move through the tenure process. What are your thoughts there?
2: Well, thank you for that question. First of all, I absolutely uh, agree with Susan's comments on uh, about the process and the ways in which our various institutions uh, have idiosyncrasies that impact how these processes play out. One of the things I love about uh, Rocky ellen Delmer's article is it addresses the myth of the level playing field, which I think is at the core of many of the challenges we see related to uh, appointment, promotion, and tenure. Specifically, the way these processes are set up, it... it it sort of places the emphasis on outcomes on the individuals and takes it away from the structures and systems that drive these, uh, these um, processes that determine who gets tenure or, or who does it. And so we have really been at the university of Connecticut, been trying to address that by bringing exposure uh, of the inequities that are referenced in the article mm-hmm. Uh and how they're embedded in the systems and structures that drive our own APT process, mm-hmm. we're trying to sort of empower academic leaders to address uh, these uh, racial realities by uh, encouraging them to have critical conversations about the APT process from a DEI perspective. Mm-hmm. Specifically, uh, we're trying to provide those involved in the process with, at all levels, with tools and knowledge ne- needed to mitigate those. Um, various uh, inequities that are addressed in in Raquel and Delma's article. The other thing I'll say is I think um, as we think about research, teaching and service, I I can pick any of those three areas and highlight uh, particular ways in which they're flawed and and sort of expose this myth of the level playing field. Mm. One is uh, related to where we have the opportunity to publish our work Mm -hmm. particularly those of us who are engaged in in DEI or or racial justice related research uh, and the numbers of of, uh, journals and 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 publications that are willing to accept that work Mm -hmm. Uh, but more importantly the availability of folks who are prepared to uh, effectively and appropriately evaluate that work, right? And so right, right. you think about all of these different ways in which these structures are, are flawed. Uh, but then on the service side, think about the, the high levels in, of, of labor, the disproportionate amount of labor that uh, racially minoritized faculty are asked to do, uh, particularly in, in times like what we've recently experienced to support universities, uh, DEI-related missions and goals. And that labor really counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't a way for that labor to be uh, valued effectively, uh, to, I'm sorry, to be evaluated effectively and, and, and to count. Uh, and even in cases where we have uh, faculty who are doing important uh, service work that's related to their research, depending on what disciplines they're in, those disciplines are not as likely to accept that right. work towards right. uh uh their um portfolios. Right. And so you can see at all different levels of of the system how um these inequities continue to persist.
0: And something that uh you know uh, that Delma and Raquel you put into your work, uh you actually were talking about the 310 the three areas that are evaluated for for uh Uh, tenure. And you said uh, in here that as far as service is concerned, that it actually was something that uh, was lower in value. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about that? And then I want to come back to Susan and Frank with a follow-up, but but can you talk a little bit more about service? You said scholars argue that from the trilogy of metrics for tenure and promotion, service is one of the areas where racially minoritized faculty place higher value and significantly greater amount of time, although the service is not as highly regarded as research productivity and teaching effectiveness in most tenure um, and promotion processes. Uh, Delman and Raquel, I'd like your thoughts on on that uh that discovery that you Mm -hmm. made
1: absolutely so given the context of racially minoritized faculty and not only looking at the representation of them as you notice in the article we noted the statistics for racially minoritized faculty Mm -hmm. at the different faculty ranks and so we already know that there are far fewer from us than there are white faculty and right. so with that comes much more uh, great, it comes greater responsibility and expectations in all the areas, but services specifically, especially in service of um, students who are racially minoritized, but also expectations that we become the experts or that we play the role of the expert in many initiatives that the institutions are putting forth toward equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so although these um, expectations are higher and racially minoritized faculty get drawn to and asked to and nominated to, celebrated to, you know, you name it, to serve Mm -hmm. on these efforts when it comes to uh, evaluating the three pillars for tenure and promotion service always is the least considered, even though for many racially minoritized faculty that represents much of the work that they do. And so that is uh, one of the imbalances that we want to highlight, and how all of this energy and effort that we both are committed to, but also are being asked to do because of the systemic inequalities in the academy, it doesn't account for much when it comes to assessing us for our worth uh, for tenure and promotion. Yep. I, then, in I connection also, with
4: that, huh? oh, oh, sorry, Dam, I was so, just going to jump in here um, and just say that. Uh, I think it's a constant struggle, Laura, and we've seen this throughout the the data quite explicitly, mm-hmm. um, but it's a constant struggle. I know I find myself asking constantly, who is it okay to disappoint? You know, um, my tenure dossier <laughs> has to look a certain way to get tenure, uh, but it's, Humanly impossible to engage in copious amounts of service that also mm-hmm. takes a toll on oneself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in addition to uh, the high levels of service that racially minoritized faculty engage in, there is also the notion of the personal tax it also takes on one. Go ahead, Dhamma.
1: Um, no, I was just going to actually pass it on to you. But uh, <laughs> so, related to that point that Raquel just mentioned about the, the costs of the service, I think there also comes the idea of time, mm-hmm. uh, which we talk about in the paper also. So, in relation to uh, uh, resource deficit consciousness, we outline time, money, and prestige mm-hmm. as three of the main areas which racially minoritized faculty are impacted by the structural inequalities and so thinking about service so spending so much time on service also takes time away from our scholarship and from our teaching right um, and with that also explaining the connection of uh to, to the concept of time so the feeling that we always need more time that we don't have enough time that we should have more time right because the expectations of us as racially minorities faculty to perform and sometimes the expectation to outsmart time in the academy is what's valued and what's framed as successful. So inability to demonstrate that you can do uh, things that are not humanly possible with the limited time that you have really Mm -hmm, places mm -hmm. a burden upon racially minorities faculty with time. Um, And then with the concept of prestige, uh, we talk about it in relation to if you are an institution that is deemed more um, elite right. or more more um, wealthy and, well, it's and that's has that access to all these resources. it's, that, right, it's exactly. that academic
0: pedigree that we we all kind of struggle with, and and I think it it's important because what you just said about the value goes to something Susan and, and Frank were talking about in terms of how it's all embedded in our institution. Okay. So right. but basically the culture of the institution is going to have different types of values, different types of things that we are actually, um, uh, kind of pushing our, our community to, um, to be with or be against or be whatever. Okay. But here's the thing. The thing about those values are actually embedded in different ways about how we do business. And Susan, a a question to you Mm -hmm. is when you've pushed back on values, when you've pushed back on systemic things, how does that actually kind of manifest itself in terms of how it's been received by your colleagues and maybe some people at the faculty at, at, at the Academy that, may not have been ready for this conversation?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question, Laura, because at the end of the day, you know, we're talking a lot about policies and procedures, but policies and procedures are made by people. Yep. And it is so critical that we not lose sight of that. Um, I'm a little famous for walking around my institution whenever someone says, well, we don't do this or this doesn't it's happen how, here. That's not the Merrimack
2: way. <laughs> yeah. Or
3: just, or just, yeah. it's not that. Yeah. It's yeah. not the way we do think who's we. Yeah, that's exactly. the most important question to me. Often people won't even invoke the entire institution. They'll simply say we, mm-hmm. and I think we have to keep being willing to ask who is we, when we roll and peel the layers back. Sometimes we is a very specific set of people who, as you just indicated, have had disproportionate influence on mm-hmm. policies and procedures, mostly by virtue of being around longer.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: um, and when we peel that layer back, we're talking about people being around longer, but and and it's not um it's 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 not uh, coincidental that those mm-hmm. people tend to be typically white people, typically, mm-hmm. right? Yep. in every institutional setting. Yep. um, and you know, it's disproportionately white and male, of course, and mm-hmm. you know, but at the end of the day, That is really when we, when we invoke the, we often that's, you know, we've got to, we've got to be willing to ask who is the, we, we? um, what your question was, what happens when I do that? Well, I'll tell you that it very much depends on the context, on the circumstance, on the group of people in the room and the openness to the change. Mm -hmm. Um, I have encountered receptive. Yes. Let's move in that direction. Um, you know, in all the different institutional settings I've been in. And I've encountered a flat out, you know, no, that is not that is that does not align with my values or my standards. And it's all across the board. Right. Right, right. So what I think we need to continue talking about in our field, especially those of us in academic leadership positions, is we have to continue talking about how do we get past the no? How do we stop throwing up our hands and saying, well, so and so is just unreceptive. And so the conversation's over. Um, because I think we will find when we become more creative, more diligent. And for me, what this always comes back to, and I've, I've written about this in, in my own work, and Raquel and I have written about this in our work together. And that is the idea that w- hardly ever can we accomplish these kinds of changes as solo actors, we must build mm. coalition. We must collaborate. We must bring multiple voices to the table, um, because sometimes that is the only thing that will push the sort of resistant or recalcitrant no to a maybe I should rethink that or let's build something better together. We need co-conspirators more than allies. Exactly. Exactly. And people again, with, with protection and privilege, willing to put their necks out. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
3: because mm-hmm. we can't ask our pre-tenure colleagues. I, I hate the phrase junior faculty. I try not to use it yeah. in my own world. Because first of all, I, I didn't become a faculty member until I was 42 years old and I wasn't junior anything. <laughs> um, so, but but also because I just think it sort of diminishes mm-hmm. um, the contributions and the value of our pre-tenure colleagues. So I, I say pre-tenure or... Um, you know, I just think it's really important that we don't consistently ask our pre-tenure colleagues to put their necks on the line um, toward making these changes. Those of us who have protection, who have Privilege who have status and standing have to be the ones willing to do it.
0: Yep. I want to just give Delma and Raquel a heads up that after I ask follow up to Frank, I am going to ask you all to to really talk about those numbers and what uh, these uh, racially minoritized faculty numbers actually look like uh, so that to really inform people a bit more uh, before, because I think it's important. Um, So I want to give you that heads up. But Frank, I want to turn this to you and ask a quick follow-up on this idea of when you are able, because of your role at the, the University of Connecticut, you have uh, uh, two hats uh, or multiple hats, as we all do, uh, but the DEI element, when you come in and you're actually pushing for change, for systemic change, where do people seem to respond to you uh, more Is it because of the DEI hat? Is it because of the faculty hat? Is it because of the program hat? Where does that come from? And, and, and the reason I'm asking this question is as we're all looking at our own institutions, who could be our co-conspirators? Who do we have to find political capital on campus? Is there something about your political capital that you think rests heavier in one part of your role over another that can actually help push some of these some of these issues um, and towards systemic change?
2: Great question. I actually think it's the combination of both. Uh, my understanding of of the academic enterprise from my faculty role and my uh, sort of knowledge and understanding of DEI related matters from uh, both my research and, uh, my lived experiences as an administrator. I think for me, what's been most helpful is, uh, to pick up on, on Susan's thought that being clear about identifying the coalition of the willing, Mm. who are the folks who, uh, it is important to partner with to help build, uh, um, some momentum around addressing these matters. Uh, mm-hmm. In in both my roles as a CDO, my existing one in the previous institution, uh, the relationship with the provost was critical on the academic side of, of the house. And so the ability to be in partnership with the provost office has allowed us to do some things that uh, honestly, I wouldn't have been able to do on my own if I approached it just from a DEI perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to uh, Susan's other point, the the keepers of the academy—those folks who are are invested in in, in not changing the system and structures because historically and 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 currently they benefit from it—are uh, are, going to resist regardless of what hat I'm putting on. And so uh, I think the ability. Uh, to uh, collaborate and leverage the, the, the sort of political capital of a provost's office or the president or the chancellor, whatever mm-hmm. the structure is, is essential.
0: Great. I, I think that's a great answer. And I think one of the things that I always try to, to kind of pull together, and I, I mean, I come up through the administrative ranks. Uh, and so I look at things through policy and why policy exists and why, where we're we're falling behind in terms of our best practice. and, you know, when I would hear students uh, and members of our community bring up issues around what is uh, problematic, I always like to peel back and say, well, where? why is it problematic? What's the root of this? Where are we sitting from? And we need to do that more. And we can't just make a change without getting to why the change uh, is necessary and where is the foundation uh, that is causing uh, this issue from demoralizing. Uh, be problematic. Um, Frank, I see you're taking yourself off mute. Do you have a follow up? Yeah,
2: yeah, I was just going to follow up on that point. Um, I often refer to this as we've become comfortable sort of putting band-aids on cuts, but not necessarily addressing those instruments that cause the cuts in the first place, right?
0: Absolutely absolutely if you, you know it's it, there i i i uh people might might look at me cross-eyed with this example but there's never a good episode of my show without me bringing up a, an analogy or of some kind you know when i had my daughter uh we didn't baby proof the house we put up one baby gate into the kitchen which is where we knew all the bad stuff was and so at some point when she made it into the into the kitchen we had moved all of the bad stuff out uh it, so that um, if she made it in, the worst thing that could happen was something we we knew uh, that was going to maybe a pinched finger or something of that nature. Uh, but you know, you make you can't baby proof the world. You can't make these things happen and avoid them. We do a very good job trying to avoid it. Put a put a a Band-Aid on it. And to your point, Frank, we don't do the best work, which is to let's get the poison out of the kitchen. (laughs) Like We need to get the poison out of the kitchen so that the child doesn't get to the poison. Um, Instead, we say, oh, let's put this very in uh, this awful thing on the cabinet door to keep them from opening it and getting to the poison. Just get the poison out. Uh, And we need to do better by that. Um, Raquel, I see yourself Mm -hmm. off mute. Go ahead. Uh, so you
4: asked for numbers, Laura, I'm going to go through this, uh, really quickly here. Um, so what's interesting, you'll see the disparity as I uh, go through the numbers with you and you'll see that as the ranks get higher. So Mm -hmm. as we move from assistant professor to full professor, the numbers get lower, right? Mm -hmm. Important to point out, they're low to begin with, okay? Um, so we report from the National Center for Educational Statistics, um, and the last group, and I believe was 2019. Um, and so for white assistant professors, and I'm going to combine both, as as it is reported in NCES, um, both female and male, total 73% then we move to hispanic assistant professors total again male female six percent black assistant professors a total of eight percent asian american and pacific islander 14 percent, and less than one percent for american indian or alaskan natives all right Mm -hmm. then moving up the rank to associate professor Again, white associate professors uh, account for 76%. (laughs) Hispanic professors, 4%. And a reminder, I'm combining both male and female here. Black, 6%. Asian, American, Pacific Islander, 12%. And less than 1% combined for American Indian and Alaska Native. Finally, for full professors... Uh, White full professors make up 80% of the professoriate. Hispanic professors, 3%. Black full professors, 4%. Asian-American and Pacific Islander professors, 11%, and again, less than 1% American Indian and Alaska Native. So you'll see from that, um, and I'm a visual learner, so I like to be able to look at numbers, um, you know, to truly sort of understand the picture they're painting. Um, But but when you hear those numbers and you see them, it really, really points out the great disparity um, across ranks. Mm.
0: And the and it's you know put aside the fact that we've been there's been a lot of publication a lot of chatter right now about the associate professor level that uh, there's this kind of you know national dearth there there's like there's not enough of them there's a lot of things going on in terms of shouldering the responsibilities of administrative work and going to Delma's point earlier about how do you parcel out your time Um, ultimately what we're hearing from these numbers is that there is, the numbers don't lie. There is a stark problem here. And how the institutions are actually addressing the recruitment of uh, faculty to diversify their faculty ranks isn't working. Correct. And, and
4: it's also impor- important to point out, Laura, that not all of us have the same 24 hours in a day. Yeah. OK, <laughs> yes. so when Delma and I nuance these concepts of time, money and prestige, even hidden within those numbers, uh, racially minoritized faculty do not have access to the same time, money or prestigious mm-hmm. institutions.
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. When you in your work, uh, you did talk about that in terms of the time that it takes and and, uh, the issue around research uh, and the time it takes in the faculty's life. What were some of the biggest kind of uh, areas where you're going, oh, this is this is where real, real time issues come up. But can you give us some examples Yeah, I think
4: Delma pointed to um, a great one earlier, which, you know, if we're going with the service, um, when you engage in tons of service, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to be productive, right? When you have to conceptualize a study, write IRB, execute the study, Mm -hmm. uh, you know,
0: code data. As soon as you said IRB, there's people out there to twitch it. Like, so there's, right. there's certain kind of cues out there. There's exactly. a trigger. There's exactly. a trigger. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then Laura, it
4: takes, it takes a lot of time to write. Yes. Um, you know, sometimes I might have a good two hours. Sometimes I might have a good 20 minutes or I might have a whole day where I'm locked away, but that looks different depending on workload, depending on expectations, right? Um, the other thing that I, I would talk about is li- linked with tenure, this notion of high impact journals. And mm. you talk about cringing, Delma and I, and I'm sure Susan and Frank too. <laughs> um, cringe. I've often been in the room with folks that, Uh, talk about well it wasn't in a high impact journal. Well Mm -hmm. what does that even mean? Yeah you actually
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you, Raquel, because I wanna talk about this because I think this is really important. Frank alluded to it, Susan alluded to it. There's that, that idea of what is what counts. OK, mm-hmm. and this idea of what is a high impact journal, that's where some people are getting. And it was clear in your research and in your in your publication that it is people say, no, no, that one doesn't count as much. That's like a JV. That's the junior varsity. That's not a varsity journal. Yeah. Um, talk more about that, because it, it, it is so relevant here.
4: It absolutely is. And, you know, when we talk about this, Laura, we have to back up. How are we defining high impact to begin with? Okay. Um, and then are we dismissing an entire group of folks who are doing amazing work mm-hmm. that, A, don't necessarily have access to these journals. These journals serve as gatekeepers and don't necessarily want the work that many racially minoritized faculty engage in. Right. Um, and so I, I question whenever I hear a colleague talk about impact factor. You know, Dum and I wrote an op-ed together that yielded more reviews than any of our journal articles, <laughs> ind- individually and collectively. So, if if, it, if the argument is really about reach and impact, how come we're not factoring op-eds, right, podcasts, right. alternative? Mm-hmm scholarship because this is meaningful and more accessible um you know i i've said in my work my own parents can't access journal articles that you Mm -hmm. have to be able to download with institutional access you know what i mean if if we talk about access and equity truly how are we defining it all locked
0: behind a firewall there you go people just get it yes there you go
1: and uh, along the same lines laura um one point that Raquel and I really want to stress in this work is the importance of quality versus quantity, specifically when it comes to institutions that say to be committed to equity and social justice. But when it comes to equity work, which takes time and it it, because uh, uh, often incorporates components that are not uh, part of like traditional research or traditional topics that institutions are used to. Then that, that is going to take more time, but mm-hmm. um, often what is rewarded is who can produce the most publications in one year yep. rather than who is deeply engaged engage with these issues that we say we care about and are we assigning value to the quality over the quantity. Mm
0: -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. I want to shift a second because I'm looking at the time and there was something I wanted to really talk about. One of the things that you put in your research, and and this is open to anybody uh, on the panel, one of the things that you put in your research was about evaluation of faculty and evaluation of the uh, racially minoritized faculty. And uh, the reviews of what happens uh, in terms of uh, that come from students, right? So we have students fill out faculty evaluations at the end of each semester. And just by virtue of the fact that a lot of these racially minoritized faculty are teaching classes that may you know, push students uh, to think about worldview and their own view in different ways. Uh, this is something that may skew the outcomes of these uh, evaluations. And I, I'm I'm op- I want to throw this out to the whole group. There's change that has to happen. And in this case, the, we always hear about the importance of getting student feedback and the importance of students to, to do their faculty evaluations. Um, but when the students are actually driving uh, some, some data that is actually not indicative of, a, of the quality of the faculty's uh, teaching, but actually more, more reflective of the students' uh, growth that's the 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 difficult growth that may be happening or maybe not be happening with the student. How is that impacting the the future of this faculty member? Well,
4: I think it's greatly impacting Laura. Um, there is so much research that supports this, right? Uh, and many scholars have written about the type of data that's yielded from student evaluations, specifically for racially minoritized faculty. So for Mm -hmm. example, um, evaluations may talk about how well-spoken this professor is, or, wow, I was surprised by Dr. So-and-so's ability to talk about this topic in this way. It's like a wow factor, right? there's also been literature on you know the negative side so faculty who have accents for example like like i do Mm -hmm, (laughs) and Delma mm -hmm. does too um that students note a lot of other things other than teaching or the curriculum right so they make note of everything else and again this is not generalizable across the board, certainly. Um, but that there is much more data that supports that for racially minority, negative comments for mm-hmm. racially minoritized faculty, when right. compared with white faculty, right. um, who often are lauded for their ability to teach as opposed to coming into a classroom, quote, unquote, well-dressed or well-spoken. Delma. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: Yes, uh, I would like to add, uh, I echo everything that Raquel just pointed out. I also want to highlight the problems with using means calculated from the student evaluations and Mm -hmm. the fact that even one student or two that are outliers in the data set will bring those means down and the consequences that this will have for the faculty. And I also want to make a connection to the framework to... uh, Victor Ray's uh, racialized organizations framework and that Mm -hmm. whiteness Mm -hmm. is a credential and just Mm -hmm. speaking to the point that Raquel mentioned at the end and what it doesn't really matter what level of training you have or how amazing you are at teaching the classes that you are teaching the credential of whiteness in many times outweighs all of that and so no matter how lower quality the teaching is from our white colleagues um evaluations will consistently show biased results against racially minoritized faculty absolutely
0: um i wanted to throw it over to frank because i saw him to self take himself off mute and then i'm going to ask the whole group Um, we're coming up on the top of the hour and we're going to talk about what we can do uh, at each institution to think about change to this so go ahead frank
2: yeah i was just going to offer one other example raquel and Delma pointed out some of the structural challenges there's also uh, the re- the selective use of these evaluations to mm-hmm. deny people from moving uh, from one level to the next and i i, I didn't want to leave that out i you know i have countless examples but one from my previous ex- institution where uh, a, a pr- associate professor was going up for full and there was one negative comment in all of the teaching evaluations and the committee used that one comment to say, well, maybe this instructor should uh, delay going up until the following year. Mm. And so to me, that was a sort of selective use of yeah. of this, that depending on who was on the APT committee at that time, could have had a different outcome.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing that up. Frank, you're a t- truth teller. I like that. Um, so this goes out to everybody. And uh, Susan, go ahead.
3: Oh, no, I was just waiting for your question. You're, okay,
0: that's great. <laughs> I was like, you're anticipating. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to start with you then. Uh, so can the Academy change? Um, and does mm. the political will exist to change this? And Susan, you talked a bit to, about it earlier, <laughs> about calling out the we. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond that, is there something from a from a uh, as each, as listeners are here from various mm-hmm. institutions across, uh, the, the academy, uh, what are the things that they can do? What is the call to action?
3: Uh, so my, my answer to your first question is yes, the academy can change and I think it will change. I think it has to change. Um, I think our practices and our, our norms are, Um, Thankfully, being being pushed in really important ways to open up, to expand and to um, become more fully not just inclusive, but, you know, expansive in the ways we talk and think about what it means to be successful in the academy. Um, I do believe, you know, just echoing Frank's comment again, I do believe that, you know, collaborative coalition building um, is the key. Um, I believe that uh, developing the muscle of courage to both question, challenge, and provide alternative policy framings and visions is essential work for any of us who say that we are committed to social justice and equity in the academy. Um, I think that work largely falls upon those of us, I've said this earlier, I'll say it again, largely falls upon those of us with protection and privilege of tenure and other kinds of protection in our institutions, including the protection that comes with, with whiteness and with being white. Um, And I think, you know, to all my white colleagues out there, I would say like, let's get it together, folks. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. have got a lot of work to do. Um, We need to be, you know, digging in doing that work and worrying less about being liked and how we're perceived and being more, much more concerned about being effective and actually reflecting our values in our work. So um, collaboration, courage, um, consistency, and, and resisting complacency, I think, are key. I happen to like patterned alliteration. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and I are on the same page. I'm going to go to uh, Frank, and then I'm going to give Raquel and Delma the last words because this was their paper. So Frank.
2: Sure. Just one quick uh, point here around the importance of diversifying our, our boards. And engaging uh, legislators and political office, folks in political office, uh, particularly in public institutions, as we're seeing, uh, you know, across the country, a very uh, volatile landscape in that.
0: Yes, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing that up. The political landscape is very important and the boards uh, and the makeup of the boards. Uh, Raquel and then Delma.
4: You know, I would add to Susan and Frank's comments by saying we need to dismantle existing structures that we use to measure success. Mm. Uh, We must take into consideration the unique needs of racially minoritized faculty. um, And we end our paper by saying, let's just stop the pretense of neutrality. How about we start there? Let's stop pretending that uh, (laughs) neutrality is uh, ubiquitous. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. And that's, I think that, that that statement is very important as we look at so many aspects around the academy. We try to be so neutral and, and that doesn't exist. So very good. Uh, Delma, go ahead.
1: So echoing everything that has been shared so far with relation to that, uh, the 10-year guidelines as they exist need to be deconstructed and need to be tailored to the realities of racially minoritized faculty and also to the context of the of the institutions within which they operate, but most importantly, it is, it is urgent to examine the impact of time, money, and prestige on how that. the experiences of racially minoritized faculty are taking place.
0: Thank you so much. You know, this has been an absolutely uh, incredibly thoughtful and important conversation. I want to thank all of you. Um, If you are, thank you, Gabby, keep clapping out there. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to make sure that we have uh, uh, given everybody an opportunity to share their information. Uh, If you want to stay connected uh, to our guests, you can follow several of them on uh, Twitter. uh, Raquel is at Dr. Raquel Wright M uh, on Twitter. Delma is at Dr. A uh, Delma Rose, Ramos. Excuse me, Dr. A Delma Ramos on Twitter. Uh, Susan, you can find her at S U S Marine. Uh, or on LinkedIn. And Frank is very smart and he is in, uh, he's, he's uh, covered up and he doesn't use social media. So he's smarter than, than any of us. Uh, (laughs) So um, I want to give everybody a last shot uh, to just say, thank you. Uh, I want to just say, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, This is an important topic. If you follow me on, uh, on uh, here on Fireside, or you subscribe to my uh, link, my, excuse me, my Substack newsletter, you will receive a uh, replay of this uh, in 48 hours, as well as all of the contact information uh, for my guests, uh, as well as their full bios. And I want to thank uh, everyone for their time. Please come back next week uh, at the same time, noon on Wednesday, for the uh, next episode of Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And thank you all. And Be well and keep doing the good work and uh, find some co-conspirators out there. And so thank you, everybody, for a great show.